You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Whenever someone on television or elsewhere, makes an overly broad generalization about Islamic cultures, societies, nations like, say, Saudi Arabia, the nation Donald Trump visited over the weekend, a nation where women are enslaved, gays are beheaded, and petty crime is punished with amputations, a nation that has used its oil wealth to push its murderously conservative brand of Islam all over the world. Whenever someone does that, makes a kind of broad generalization about Islam, Someone else, a good lefty usually, will immediately point to Indonesia, the most populous Muslim nation on earth and an officially secular state, as proof that the Muslim world, 1.6 billion people, is vast and not a monolith. And the Muslim world, you know what, it is vast and it isn't a monolith. And there are millions and millions of liberal and progressive Muslims out there, devout, lapsed, and ex, who support the separation of church and state, the rights of women, the right to free speech, including blasphemous speech, which is, of course, a highly subjective fucking judgment call. So best leave sorting that blasphemy shit out to a higher and most likely imaginary power. But it looks like we're going to have to stop citing Indonesia as the counterexample to Saudi Arabia. Because in March, two gay men, a 23-year-old and his 20-year-old boyfriend, were arrested in Indonesia after their neighbors, who had been spying on them for weeks or months, burst into their apartment. Neighborhood vigilantes suspected them of being gay, reported The Guardian, and set out to catch them having sex. Mobile phone footage that circulated online and forms part of the evidence against the men shows them naked and visibly distressed as one apparently calls for help on his cell phone. The second man is repeatedly pushed by another man who is preventing the couple from leaving the room. These gay men, this couple in Indonesia, are unlucky enough to live in Aka province. These two men, boys really, were dragged into court, handcuffed to each other, and found guilty of being in a gay relationship. And now, just in the last couple of days, both were sentenced to a public caning. That caning is scheduled for today, for Tuesday, while you're listening to this. Both of these guys, these young men, will be subjected to 85 blows. Prosecutors asked for 80 The judges sentenced them to 85. Caning is torture. And both of these men are likely to go into shock and both will be scarred physically and emotionally for life. ACA has a special legal status allowing it to insert Sharia bylaws into the criminal code, reports BuzzFeed. In the province, ordinances criminalizing drinking, alcohol, sex outside of marriage and gay sex can be enforced against Muslims and non-Muslims. Also criminalized in Akka, immodestly dressed women. But all of Indonesia, reports the Asia Times, is slouching towards theocracy. A governor in another province was thrown into prison for two years for bumbling a quote from the Koran, accused of blasphemy. Last night, while I was reading about those two young gay men in Akka province, police in Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, raided a gay sauna and gym and arrested 141 men. Last month, police raided a party in a hotel and 14 gay men were arrested. In secular Indonesia, where homosexuality isn't technically illegal outside of Aka province, where it is illegal, but it could soon be illegal everywhere, 
in Indonesia, because there is a movement to criminalize gay sex throughout Indonesia, and it's gathering steam. All of Indonesia could go the way of Aka province. It has to be said, and I'm going to say it now, that the rise of religious extremism isn't just happening in the Muslim world. Extremism, religious and otherwise, is on the rise fucking everywhere. The Russian state under Putin has embraced and empowered the Russian Orthodox Church. Hindu extremism is on the rise in India. Buddhist extremists, Buddhist extremists in Buddhist majority Myanmar are brutally persecuting the Muslim minority in that country. Christian extremists are a threat here in the United States, but we call our Christian terrorists pro-life hardliners and we give dominionists, those are people who want to impose a Christian theocracy in the United States, people who are at home beating off right now to the handmaid's tale. We give dominionists here reality shows once they've lost track of just how many kids they've had. So it's not just Islam, but it's also Islam. The fear of being lumped in with anti-Muslim bigots like Pam Geller and Milo Yiannopoulos and Donald Trump, the president of the United States, and Steve Bannon leads many on the left to hesitate to condemn these kinds of anti-gay attacks and the particular theology and interpretations employed to justify them. And this allows Trump to get away with styling himself as a defender of LGBT people. Remember when he said he'd protect us from foreign ideologies? While at the same time packing his administration with the enemies of LGBT equality and LGBT existence. Now, right-wing bigots, they attack Islam to promote xenophobia. We on the left, we have to find a way to critique Islam and critique it fearlessly in order to dismantle homophobia, not promote xenophobia, and also dismantle sexphobia and misogyny and transphobia. You could say, and I guess I will say that Islam is now where Christianity was 100 years ago, where Christianity was for two entire millennia before that. We can't forget what was done to Alan Turing by Christian authorities, or what was done to Oscar Wilde, or what was done to Richard von Hohenberg, a Swiss nobleman who was burned at the stake with his male lover in 1482, or Katharina Hetzeldorfer, who lived and dressed as a man and was executed by drowning in 1477 for the crime of having sex with two women. But we also can't forget, and we must condemn, and we must speak out against what was done to those two young men in Indonesia today. And we have to hold religious leaders and religious traditions accountable, whatever they are, for the violence they inspire and justify. All right, coming up today on the regular edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your questions, tons of my answers. And on the Magnum subscription edition, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, I interview Nathaniel Frank, author of Awakening, How Gays and Lesbians Brought Marriage Equality to America. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old heterosexual woman in the Midwest, and I'm in an open relationship with a 37-year-old man. We have been seeing each other now for about two months, and we know that this is not a long-term relationship because we're both moving in a month. We love to discuss extremely kinky fantasies while we are fucking that we would not ever want to be a part of our sex life in actuality. We've recently introduced talk of glory holes and the two of us blowing several men with elements of gratuitous come play. He contacted me the other day with something that he was very nervous about and kind of reluctant to tell me. And that thing was that he wants to suck a cock at a glory hole in real life. I am open to the idea, and I'm open to participating. But, and here's the kicker, only with strict condom usage. He says that he doesn't care about this. 
but the last three times we've had sex, he's been completely focused on emptying condoms from the glory hole onto himself and into my mouth. He says that he knows once I get to the glory hole, I'll be so into it that I will not care about condoms. We had plans to go about a week ago, and I packed a purse full of said condoms so I could be prepared. He got stuck at work and contacted me an hour after he was supposed to pick me up to say if I was still interested, he would rush to come get me. In that hour, I began to feel more afraid at both the legality and health repercussions of this glory hole visit, and I expressed that to him, to which he replied, well, I'm glad you're telling me this now rather than pussying out when we were there and making me really angry at you for wasting my time. I don't feel like this is a healthy response, and I responded that I will be taking a step back from the relationship. My question is, did I lead him on? I'm feeling guilty, and like my GGG mentality caused me to be too open to this initially, when I should have been able to realize this was not my thing. I want to be a better partner in the future and do not want to lead people on towards the kink precipice, only to back away and, for lack of a better term, chicken out. What do you think? How could I have handled this better? You can be open to an idea. You can be open to helping someone fulfill a particular fantasy of theirs and still have second thoughts about it, have limits that you articulated in advance. You say that you were open to the idea, but only with strict condom usage. And then he countered with, all right, I guess we can respect your boundaries. We can use condoms, but I know in the moment when it's so hot and sexy, you will want me to dump a condom full of some stranger's jizz in a glory hole into your mouth. That was him indicating that he had no respect from your boundaries. That was that was perhaps the moment where you did something wrong. And the wrong thing you did was not to lead this guy on. The wrong thing that you did was not to, at that moment, say, yeah, no, I'm not going there with you. I'm not going to put myself in a situation where in the moment, in the heat of the moment, you are pressuring me to renegotiate or abandon my safe sex requirements or my requirement for a condom or my desire not to have – some strangers come in a glory hole dumped in my mouth. So, no, I won't be going. That's where you made a mistake. You were completely GGG. There's nothing about being GGG that says you can't have limits or boundaries or rule things out or not be into something for your own reasons. Good. Good and bad. G. That's the first G. Giving. Giving of pleasure sometimes without an expectation of immediate return. Sometimes you do for your sex partner. And game for anything, which you clearly were, but game for anything as has always been the stated case in the GGG thing, game for anything within reason. And what he was asking you to do was not reasonable. And he then was unreasonable in other ways when you expressed your reservations, when you began to have second thoughts, and he blew up at you. That is not what a GGG, GGG is his responsibility too, to be GGG for you as well. That's not what a GGG person should do or would do. That's what an asshole would do. An asshole who has no respect for you or your boundaries or your safety or your comfort or your emotional security across the board. So I'm glad this is over. I'm glad you took a step back from this. You did nothing wrong. He did everything wrong. The odds that he will find another woman who wants to watch him suck cock in a glory hole, even with a condom on it, and then maybe dump the cum on his body or her body are really slim. He fucked himself out of an opportunity to fulfill 90% of his fantasy. And good luck to him finding somebody else who is as good giving and game for anything within reason as you are. And then a mid-20s bro in the uh, West Coast 
I have a question about uh, manscaping. All right. So I don't generally shave my pubes, but uh, I do like uh, to shave my chest and my armpits. Right. And so the thing is, like some of my some of my friends I've talked to about shaving chest and they're and they're like, oh, that's gay. <laughs> and they don't mean I don't think in a homosexual sense. They mean in the in like a sissy way, which um, I know it's not right to to refer to things as gay in that way. I'm just trying to be real here. So okay, so they say that, and then I had an ex girlfriend who said it was weird when I shaved my chest, and that she would try to get used to it. So that kind of put me off. I felt self-conscious and I stopped shaving my chest and then we broke up. And then, uh, so recently I started shaving it again. Cause I mean, I lift weights and I like, I like to look at my body without, without hair on it. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's just something that I like, but I feel kind of self-conscious about it. And then now, especially with the armpits, I'm wondering about that. Um, because I like to wear tight fitting t-shirts and if I'm in class or something and I raise my hand, I don't want my pit hairs to show. So, and also I feel like armpit hair is gross. But again, like some of my friends are like, bro, that's kind of gay. I'm like, I'm like, come on. Like, so anyways, uh, I'm just trying to get your, your opinion on this matter and see what you and the tech savvy at risk use and maybe any other callers who hear this think. There are a few things you can say in response to that's kind of gay. You can say, and so what if it is? You can also tell the truth. You can say, I lift weights and I like to see the definition. I like to see the gains that I'm making and they're obscured or blurred by the hair. Everyone knows that people who spend a lot of time in the gym lifting weights like to look at themselves, like to look at their bodies, even straight guys. And so that's not a big reveal. The last thing you could say, which you are unlikely to say is, Perhaps that there's something sensuous about this. It turns you on to be hairless from the waist up, that it is partially erotic. And that's where I think your hesitation and reservations and being confronted about this come in because there's some sort of sex shaming going on here. All that said, all you have to do is own it. I shave my body because I like to shave my body. I like to have no chest hair and I don't like to have pit hair. It is a choice and a preference. My body, my choice. And if I want to take my pit hair out... For my own reasons, I'm gonna. And you can think there's something gay about it. Not that there's anything wrong with being gay. Not that there's anything wrong with there being something gay about this. And then you don't have to do it. But you don't get to tell me what I do with my pits. Dude, you're a straight dude. You're a weightlifter. Own it. Be like a man about it. Not to gender this, and I reject that kind of essentialism, but be the man that you seem to obviously think that you are about this. And just own your choices. This is how you intend to style your body. And if someone doesn't like it, she doesn't have to fuck you. If your friends don't like it, they don't have to do it. But you may come in for some ribbing about it. And just, like, let it roll off your fucking back. Stop letting this eat away at you. What other people want you to do with your body is irrelevant. It's your body. You can do what you want with it for your own reasons. And then take pictures and send them to us at the Savage Lovecast because two of the tech savvy at risk you would like to see this body that you're working on so hard. And finally, dude, I got to say, you're calling into an advice show hosted by a gay guy with this problem. You know, you shave your chest and some people say that's kind of gay and you're worried about what other people think. I am actually gay and there are people who don't think 
that's good. There are people who think that I should be thrown off of towers. There, the leader of Shashnia thinks my family should murder me. There are people in this country who think it should be legal to discriminate against me in housing and employment, that I shouldn't be allowed to be married, shouldn't be allowed to have a kid. And you know what I do? I'm gay anyway. I don't care what all those people think. I'm going to do what I want to do and be who I am. So don't worry about being kind of gay. You should worry about being a little gayer like me. Do what you want without giving a shit about what other people think about what you want to do. You want to shave your chest? Some people think that's kind of gay. Be as brave as an actual gay guy and do it anyway. Hey, Dan. I'm a mid-20s queer woman. I live in Chicago, which is awesome. I'm calling with a question about feeling gaslighted by a straight woman. Here's the situation. So the place where I work, there's another female employee there. And there's for the whole time we've been working together, which is probably since about last summer. So several months, there's been a constant sort of flirtatious undercurrent going on between us, mostly initiated by her initially, um, things like making specific kinds of eye contact and then doing the double take, you know, passing each other in the hallway, making eye contact, looking away, looking back, doing the body scan, you know, that sexy eye contact thing. And one time I asked her early on in our working relationship if she had plans for the upcoming weekend. And she said, oh, if, if somebody asked me on a date, I'll have plans. Things that are, were obviously flirtatious, things like that. It's not all in my head that she was flirting with me. We've hung out outside of work a couple of times, both one-on-one and with other coworkers, um, just for fun. Um, most recently, just this afternoon, we went to see a movie together. I have a have had a growing interest and attraction to her and decided maybe it's time to sort of bring this flirtation to the next level. So I invited her to a movie, thinking there would be a nice romantic environment. Well, throughout the movie, we had been sort of like sharing the armrest and like bumping elbows up and that kind of thing. And partway through the movie, I asked if I could hold hands. And she said, oh, I don't I don't hold hands. And um, we talked afterward. I said, I'm sorry if I made things awkward. I asked her if I had misinterpreted anything. And she said, oh, well, I'm I'm straight. Um, So my question is, (laughs) like, what the hell happened? Um, I'm not so full of myself that I project flirtatiousness onto people. Like she was definitely flirting with me. Um, I just feel really confused and really hurt. And I feel like maybe she was playing with my mind. You know, she's not bi curious or heteroflexible. She has no intention of exploring. Why would she have been dropping hints to me all along and then consenting to hang out one-on-one in these sort of romantic settings, I feel like I'm questioning my judgment, but I don't think I have to. I think it's on her. And I don't know. I'm just very confused. I feel like I was just played by a straight girl. I don't want to make your day worse. It sounds like you're already having kind of a bad day with all of this by jumping down your throat. And later on in your call, you don't use this term, but at the beginning of your call, you use and abuse this term that I wish people would stop using and abusing, which is gaslighting. Gaslighting is a kind of abuse, a kind of emotional abuse where someone manipulates someone else into questioning their own 
sanity and attempts to drive that person crazy by getting them to question their own sanity. That wasn't what happened to you. You mix signals. You use proper terms later on to describe what happened to you, that she was playing games, that she was being inscrutable, she was leading you on. Yeah, she did all of that, but it's not gaslighting. You have not been subjected to a campaign of emotional abuse by a partner who's attempting to get you to question your own sanity. Some idiot straight girl led you to believe she might be interested in you when that wasn't true, perhaps, and you feel badly used. You feel like you got played. You feel like she was toying with you and that makes you angry and it can make you angry and it should make you angry, but you weren't gaslit. So what was going on with her? Why was she sending you all these signals when she had no intention of exploring? I don't know. She liked the attention. Uh, Maybe she was interested. Maybe she still is interested and she is still struggling to find her way out of the closet. And with you, she walked right up to that line and then balked at the last minute. And maybe one day in the future when she's out and, and bi or lesbian identified, she will look back on that moment and feel bad about it. But it'll be something that she did that helped her come to terms with her sexuality. It'll be a precipice that she walked up to a few times and a few different circumstances before finally gathering together the courage to take the leap? I don't know. Only the future knows. And unless you are still in this woman's life in the future, you're probably never going to know. All you got to tell yourself is, yeah, that was stupid. You got played by maybe a straight girl, maybe a closet case, and it was humiliating and unpleasant. And when the takeaway from an experience like that isn't this is unforgivable, that this is abusive, that this is blah 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 What you take away from an experience like that is I don't treat people that way myself because that's not a way I would like to be treated. That is a way that I was just treated that I did not fucking like. And so I don't treat people that way. I don't play games. I don't send mixed signals. And I tell the truth. And I'm authentic with others so that I don't give them false hopes or mislead them or play them and then make them feel like idiots. So I'm sorry this happened to you in the grand scheme of terrible things that can happen to a queer person or a straight person or anybody else. It's mortifying and humiliating, but in the end, pretty small beans. And in a week or two, you will be over it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old female living on the East Coast, and I've gotten myself into a bit of a mess, and I was hoping you could help me walk through it. I've been having an affair with a married friend of mine who recently left his wife for me. Unfortunately, she is also a friend of mine and she found out that it was the affair was me um, and also found out that many of our mutual friends have known about it for the past few months and didn't tell her. I feel awful for hurting her, but I don't know how to handle it. Do I let her yell and scream at me? Do I avoid her? Do I call her and apologize? I don't want to hurt her any more than I already have. Um, I I do think she's a good person. I think they, as a couple, were awful together and treated each other horribly. But she does deserve happiness as much as he does. Um, and I just understand she will hate me, and she does hate me. And I can live with that, but I don't want her to hate our friends for, for lying to her as well. Um, and I, I just want her to know that. Do you feel awful for hurting her? Because it seems to me that you could have anticipated that this kind of hurt would be done unto her, that this affair would eventually be discovered and that your friend would be angry uh, and hate you and be hurt. And that was 
at some point along the line, while you were having this affair, you must have contemplated that, and that was okay with you. And her hurt was okay for you. That her hurt was, at the very least, a risk you were willing to run to get at this guy's dick. And by my estimation, her hurt was a near certainty that you were willing to bring about so that you could get at this guy's dick. So do you really feel bad for hurting her? And should you feel bad for hurting her? There are times when an affair is the catalyst that ends a relationship that needed to end. And the affair partner is a means to that needed and necessary end. And perhaps in a few years or five or 10 years, when both parties look back on the end of that relationship, the affair partner was a necessary and needed catalyst to bring about the end of something that fucking needed to end. And maybe the anger and resentment at you for being the catalyst for creating this change that needed to actually happen will dissipate in time. And with some perspective, once your friend has the long view, your friend does not have the long view right fucking now. Your friend rightly, I think, hates your guts right now. I'm not saying your guts are detestable. I'm not saying that you are hateful and that she is right to hate you for that reason. But she is in her rights to be really angry at you. And maybe if you really want to be her good friend, you should let her be angry at you because that anger will cauterize the wound for her that is the end of this relationship, a relationship that by your reading, and it could be a self-serving reading, needed to end. And maybe one day your friend will be able to see that. And you guys can circle back and reestablish a connection and reestablish a friendship. Or maybe the fuck not. Maybe that will never fucking happen. And that is a price that you could have anticipated, should have anticipated, or did anticipate a price that you now have to pay, which is the end of this friendship, which you squandered away on some dick, and the collateral damage being her friendships with these other people who knew what was going on and no one came to her and no one told her. And she feels mortified. She feels humiliated. Her partner was having an affair and with you, a friend, and other friends knew about it, and she feels very much the fool and is humiliated, which is a really powerful human emotion. And I think the best thing that you can do in remembrance, in honor, in memoriam of your friendship with her is to shut the fuck up and go with the fuck away and let her be mad at you. If you absolutely positively feel the need to explain yourself, send her one email apologizing Make excuses for her other friends. Don't tell her that you thought their relationship sucked and needed to end and you kind of did her a favor maybe that one day she'll be able to see and she should listen to Dance Savage this week. No, don't tell her any of that. Just tell her you're sorry. Make excuses for your mutual friends and go the fuck away. And if you hear from her, great. If not, losing that friendship was the price that you were willing to pay to get at that dick and you've lost it. Hey, Dan, 51 year old gay, single father on the East Coast. Uh, my son is 15. I got him from the foster care system a couple of years ago, uh, adopted him about uh, six months ago. And uh, my son was kicked out of his home by his born-again Christian Nazi family. And he was homeless for a period and supported himself uh, doing sex work uh, when he went into the foster system. Anyway, I just want to give you a little background. I uh, He's going to go visit my mother uh, in a few weeks. He's going to go for the weekend. And I'm going to be home alone for the first time in like 
a, a year. So uh, I wanted to, I want to get laid while he's gone. <laughs> so after he went to bed tonight, I, I signed on to Grindr and uh, I found his profile. And I kind of, I freaked out and I blocked him really fast. <laughs> but now I've got all these questions. Number one, I saw he said that he's 19, which is possible people would believe that. He's a big kid. He's almost six foot and he's pretty broad. But still, is this something gay teens, do they go on grinder? I, I mean, I was having sex when I was 15. So it's not like I think his having sex is terrible. And I also don't want to be like shaming and, and uh, you know, working on being sex positive with him. So I feel like he shouldn't be on Grinder, but can I have a conversation with him about that? Because in order to do that, I have to talk about that I was on Grinder, and is that that's weird, right? And and even though I blocked him, I mean he's had his phone for about since I got it, like six months ago. I haven't been on in a year. I'm just wondering if he's seen my profile. I didn't even think about that. And even though I blocked him, he's got some gay male friends. And I'm wondering if they see my profile. Can I not go on Grinder and scruff and all those things anymore? I don't know what to do. I'm totally freaked out here. So, and I, you know, I don't have any gay mom friends that have teenage gay sons. I don't know who to talk to. Anyway, do you have any ideas? Every once in a while, you open the newspaper or magazine. A straight one. New York Times even has written these kinds of stories about the disappearance of the gay bars. Gay bars and what few lesbian bars there ever were all across the country are closing. And a lot of gay bars are closing, people say, because of the apps. That the apps are the new gay bar. The apps are where a lot of people socialize, but also where people go to meet people and maybe hook up and find a partner, find a date, find a partner for the evening or a partner for the rest of their lives. I can't imagine that you would be at all hesitant about going into a gay bar for a drink and being seen in the gay bar by friends of your sons or your son seeing you coming out of that gay bar, walking by the gay bar down the street at gay bar. He's not old enough to get into because he's not 21 and seeing you through the large plate glass windows that define a lot of gay bars in our modern era. You wouldn't feel self-conscious about that. Even if on some level your son knew that you were in that gay bar, maybe that night, that weekend to get laid or to, you know, to be open to the possibility of getting laid or, or meeting a partner so if apps are the new gay bars, if apps are where people go instead of gay bars to socialize or to be open to possibility or to find sex, just like people go to gay bars to socialize, to be open to possibility to find sex, I don't think you should be ashamed that your son knows that you're on Grinder or Scruff or Tinder or anything else. I also know that your son, just as he is too young to go into a gay bar, is technically too young to go on Grinder. There's an 18-year-old age limit for Grinder, your son is three years too young to be on Grinder, and you should have a conversation with your son about that. A conversation where you aren't paralyzed by shame because you were on Grinder too. You're 51 years old, you're single, the apps are the new bars, and you are in the bar, and you have nothing to be ashamed of, and you are a sexual person with desires and agency, just as your son obviously is a sexual person with desire and agency, like you. At 15, I was sexually active. Not everything I did at 15 and 16 and 17 was advisable. Not all of it was without risk. 
but I survived. I got through it. I had some great experiences. I said some shitty experiences, kind of like the sex I was having in my 20s. The sex I was having in my 20s, I think I had less shitty experiences because of some of the things I learned when I was sexually active in my mid and late teens. It would have really helped me at that age to have a parent that I could talk to about that stuff. Not faulting my parents. I think if I had been gay in 15 or 16 and out now, that my parents would have been the kind of parents of a gay kid that I could have gone to. But 15, when I was 15 in 1979, 1980, I couldn't risk going to my parents. So I was flying blind into dating and sex. Doesn't sound like your son is flying blind necessarily into dating and sex. If he's engaged in survival prostitution after his shitty, shitty fucking Nazi evangelical awful parents abandon him to the streets where a lot of kids in his position end up engaged in survival prostitution at great risk. He probably knows his way around, but you now as his legal parent have a responsibility to make sure that he does. You have a responsibility to pull him aside and say, you aren't supposed to be on grinder. I could have reported your account. They would have deleted your account. You could have opened another one. It's probably how that would have went. So I didn't report your account, but we need to have a conversation about safety. We have a conversation about not engaging in survival prostitution. I'm not saying that that's why you're on Grinder now, but perhaps it's why you were on Grinder before and you don't need to be doing that on Grinder now. And then suss him out about the numbers of partners that he's having right now via Grinder. Make sure he's being safe using condoms. And you should talk to him and his physician or his pediatrician about whether he needs to get on PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, to protect him from HIV infection. Of course, PrEP is not going to protect him, particularly if he stops using condoms from syphilis, from gonorrhea, from other sexually transmitted infections. Those are the kinds of long, drawn-out, awkward conversations you need to have with your son, conversations that I wish somebody had had with me when I was 15 years old. The first person who had that kind of conversation with me when I was 15 years old was a boyfriend. And that conversation, when you're having it with someone who is trying to get in your pants, of course, not a conversation about PrEP because PrEP wasn't a thing. AIDS wasn't a thing at that point. Not the best person to get that kind of information and advice from. You, dad, a better person to get that kind of information and advice from. You need to step up. You need to have this combo. It is going to be awkward because you are going to be the sexually active parent who is on Grinder and had every right to be. And he's going to be the sexually active son, teenager who is on Grinder and shouldn't be. You also need to have a conversation with him about predators. I'm sure if he survived survival prostitution, that he knows a thing or two about predators. But you need to have a conversation with him about what he's doing and with whom he's doing it. And also not just about his safety. He's on Grinder telling people that he's 19. There are adult gay men who are in jail because they went home with someone from Grinder or picked somebody up on an app who claimed to be 19 or 18 when they were 14 or 15 or 16 below the age of consent. So it's not just his safety, his security, what's right for him. It's also, is he doing right by others? Because if he's misleading adult gay men and you two happen to live in a place where if that relationship was discovered, the fact that your son misrepresented himself wouldn't get the other guy off the hook then he's not treating the people that he's meeting via Grinder right either. And he has a responsibility to his sex partners just as his sex partners have a responsibility to him. And again, I want to emphasize here at the end, you have a right to be on Grinder. You are an adult. Grinder is the new gay bar. 
Scruff, the new gay bar. These are social hangouts as well as pickup joints. And you shouldn't be embarrassed at your age about being seen in one any more than you would be embarrassed being seen in or coming out of a gay bar. Hi, Dan. So I have a question about uh, my parents' divorce that happened a few years ago. After uh, my parents broke up, my mother started dating this man that she met online. And he's, uh, in short, turned out to be quite a nasty person. And he, he really scammed her out of a lot of money. And it took her a while to really realize what he was doing. Um, despite my uh, continual efforts to, to tell her what was happening, uh, to enlighten her, I guess. Um, and so one day, a couple of months ago, I called her and I said, told her my true feelings about how I feel about this man that she's seen. And she basically flipped out and didn't want to talk to me for a few months. Um, we did end up making up and we're talking now. Um, but immediately after that, she had decided um, maybe I should, you know, reach out to him just to let him know that uh, I, my feelings weren't that severe and that I kind of forgave him. Um, so I did. And fast forward to now, they're breaking up and I would really like to reach out to him and tell him that I would, I don't support his decisions that he's made and that how he's treated my mother. Um, but I'm not really sure if that would be acting out in anger or if that would just be, you know, setting the boundary and saying, I don't want you to contact me anymore. I don't let go. You treated my mother. I take back my apology. Um, but yeah, I don't know what to do. Whatever you need to do, whatever you need to say, whatever you need to get off your chest, go for it. This guy scammed your mother. You were forced to apologize to him for something you shouldn't have had to apologize to him for. And you no longer have to keep the peace. There's no peace that needs to be kept. So if you would feel better to get this off your chest, to put it in a letter, a great big fuck you letter, write that fuck you letter, email it to him, or phone it in, give him a call, tell him what you really think, and tell him you're glad that he is once and forever out of your life and your mother's life. Hi, Dan. 32-year-old uh, uh, cisgendered male, New York. My uh, my girlfriend slept with her ex-boyfriend not too long ago in January, and um, uh, we've been trying to work it out. Uh, we decided to stay on together uh, through April and finish out our lease and work on a relationship. At the end, we decided to try to make it work and stay together. I asked her recently uh, what her feelings are for this guy, and it sounds like she's kind of in love with him too, or just in love with him. But she wants to stay with me. I'm having a hard time with it. The guy's following her on Instagram. She's following him. He's liking, you know, pictures of time that we spend together in our home. Uh, we, we've been together for four years. We're a good team and uh, we love each other. And there's a lot of respect there. And uh, I've asked her to put an end to the relationship. And I don't appreciate uh, really the way that she's handling it. It seems unnecessarily deferential to this guy because you know, she says that down the road someday she'd maybe like to be friends, but I don't think I could ever be friends with the guy, um, which, you know, obviously puts a point on our relationship, meaning it's uh, going to outlast it. And uh, it's hard to understand how to handle this situation. So you're in New York. You made that clear in your call. Very New York uh, dimension to your problem where you and your girlfriend decided to stay together because you had a lease and you're going to stay together at least through your lease, which is a very New York sort of relationship arrangement. 
Um, so we're talking to you you're on the street. Yeah. So uh, other listeners, if there's street sounds or a car horn, it's because we're talking to somebody walking down the street in New York. Uh, it was very telling at the top of your call where you called her your ex-girlfriend and then had to back up and correct yourself. Uh, yeah, I'm having a, having a hard time and it kind of slipped out. I actually was quite, quite a bit, uh, well, I don't know. I'm very nervous talking, uh, on the phone about this. Uh, um, and I was trying to figure out how to frame it and, and lead into it. Uh, what I meant was when I called, uh, a lot of this has to do with the ex-boyfriend and it's really the ex-boyfriend heavily on me. The ex-boyfriend that she says she's still in love with and she fucked, right? Yeah. And, um, and, and and to be fair, I said that she was in love with her. Those are my words. Um, and I kind of feel like I maybe baited her a little bit with that and she didn't correct me. Um, but she, what does she say? She doesn't say that she's in love with him. What does she say? She says she has feelings for him. Yeah. She, she says she has feelings for him and they're still alive and she's trying to put them behind her and she's trying to choose me. But given her druthers, would she want to be able to? Would she want to be in a situation where she could have you both? Has that been put on the table? Yes, and she she dismissed that immediately, and that was. Oh wait a minute! You put that on the table, and she dismissed it. You put maybe you could have us both on the table with the person who already fucked him behind your back, who already did have you both. I'm I'm trying to figure out where she's coming, where what she wants, where uh-huh. she's coming from. She doesn't want to have an open relationship. Uh, that's, I've asked her about that. Um, if she wants to kind of open this relationship up, I don't think that I could be comfortable with her having a relationship with him. And as a matter of fact, I know I can't be comfortable. And she says she doesn't want an open relationship either. She doesn't want an open relationship, but she fucked this guy either. She did fuck this guy. So she did for a few minutes have an open relationship. And so did you, even though you didn't know about it or consent to it. Correct. But what she really wants is monogamy. And, and you know what? I'm not bagging on your girlfriend. I have said a million times that yeah. if you're with somebody for 50 years and you only cheat once or twice, you were good at monogamy. So I'm not saying right. that it's not okay for her to want monogamy and to have an affair or fuck up and still want monogamy after that. So I'm not calling her a hypocrite. Right. But she did open the relationship. And sometimes you have to look at people's actions right. and think and assess whether their actions are telling you what they really want. Because some people have this right. monogamy zap on their head that the culture puts there that we're all supposed to say we want monogamy whether we want that or not because that's what right. good, that's what good right. people want. We all want to be good people. So we all want to want monogamy. So even people who cheat habitually, even people who are serial monogamous who every few years dump the person they with to go get somebody new will tell you that what they want is monogamy even though in their actions what you see is a desire for new experiences, new relationships, new sex partners that can't be reconciled with the monogamous ideal, which is used to be, as Esther Perel says, one person for life, and now it means one person at a time. Right. And right. and she couldn't even right. do the one person at a time thing. So I think you should press her on that some more, and she needs to think about that some more. Whether she's saying she wants monogamy because monogamy is what she wants, and sometimes people screw up, it's still what they want, and that's valid. Or if right. she's saying she wants monogamy because that's what she's supposed to want. Right. Uh, yeah, I um, I agree. But what do you want? I, I, what do you want? I want her, and I, you know. And what kind of prices of admission are you willing to pay to have her? Right. Well, I've asked her to obviously end communicating with him, and and she hasn't. And and she has, 
Not. Um, no, 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 no. Cut off the conversation. No, no, no. She, well, she's still interacting with him to a limited degree on Instagram. She hasn't blocked. Correct. She hasn't Which blocked I, him. Right. Or unfollowed him. Correct. And that's and that's like it's that's a it's a contentious point for me right now, and I feel I because that's a simple one for me. It's like if you if you slip up and you want to make it right, just you you cut that person out of your life. That's how she demonstrates to you that she is putting you first, that she prioritizes her relationship with you, that she's willing to make this sacrifice for you and to be with you. Right. Right. And I'm a little suspicious of the ongoing interaction on Instagram because you say that she's not in communication with him anymore, but they're in some sort of contact. And Instagram has a DM feature. It has a direct message feature. I know. And I uh, presumably you're not digging through her phone at night. Uh, no. No, I'm not. And I'm trying my best to trust her, but... Right. If I were you, I would be sorely tempted to dig through her phone at night and see what kind of conversations they may or may not be having on Instagram. Yeah. Or elsewhere. Yeah. And the onus really is on the cheater in a circumstance like this to demonstrate to the person that they cheated on, who they're trying to reestablish trust with and be reinvested with their trust, to be blameless and faultless and transparent, at least for a time. I agree. And if she can't do that yeah. for you, then again, it brings me back to thinking about, well, what are her actions telling us? She fucked another dude. She fucked her ex-boyfriend. She still has some sort of feelings for him. And yet she says she wants monogamy and she wants you. And to be with you, you've asked her to cut off contact with this guy that she's not willing to do and hasn't done. So what are her actions telling well, us? Well, I, I think she would uh, certainly disagree with that to some extent. Um because I think that she is trying to act. She doesn't think that Instagram is a thing. That's, you know what I mean? Like, which I disagree with, like this dude having access to her life, which is out on display. Instagram is a thing. And it really makes me crazy. Yeah. And, 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 he, and this guy, you know, and, like, and this guy has already in a way burst into your life. This guy has yeah. already had access to parts of your life through her that he was not supposed to have access, like her pussy. He had access to that. Not that her pussy is your possession. She is not something you own, but he literally inserted himself between you two. Yes. And I'm sorry. It's another thing. It's like, she doesn't think he's like, she doesn't think that he has blame in this shit, you know? And that's like, I don't know, not to make it all about this guy. I know it's about her and it's about me, but she would argue that she that she is cutting off communications and she has made steps. And I believe that she has. And I trust her in that respect. I think that Instagram is a thing. I don't think that I'm overestimating its importance. Like having that kind of access, like you just mentioned, is very, it triggers me in a major way. And, and it, you know, and, and, and I say this is somebody with, I think, 70,000 followers or whatever the fuck it is on Instagram myself. There's an intimacy to Instagram. You are, yes. you are in someone's life, in their apartment, in their house along with them on dates at the movies with them at the gym with them you are you are present in parts of their life and witness to parts of their life that used to be reserved for intimates and yeah. so, so there's an intimacy to it even if you have millions of followers there's an intimacy to it and for your own sense of safety and to feel like you're her priority she needs to not be intimate with this guy to not be bringing him in even at this remove but not be bringing him into private spaces that thanks to social media aren't really that private anymore. But with this guy in particular, that 
Yeah. Those boundaries need to be established and clear. And he needs to not be, you know, having her, having this access to her all the time that may be keeping his feelings for her alive and vice versa. And if she's not willing to it do that, me, uh, if she's not willing to do that, yeah. like even if she thinks it's irrational, even if she thinks it's arbitrary, when you've been cheated on, sometimes you, your partner has to accommodate your what could seem irrational or arbitrary insecurities. And them demonstrating that they're willing to accommodate those seemingly irrational or arbitrary insecurities is one of the ways they win your trust back. And that she's not yeah. willing to accommodate your understandable insecurity around his presence in her life and her imagination. I think that's a really bad sign. And I think you should insist. Yeah. yeah. And if she won't, well, I think you may have your answer there about who her priority yeah. really is or what sacrifices she is or is not willing to make for you to earn back yeah. your trust. And the onus is on her to earn back your trust, particularly if monogamy is what she wants. If her, if her idea of monogamy is, is cheating's okay, but honesty is not. If you know, it's okay to like slip up and cheat every once in a while. Uh, but you know, an honest, open relationship isn't okay because she wants to be able to cheat, but she doesn't want to be cheated on, which is another kind of fuckery that's out there and, and hypocrisy that's yeah. out there. I don't want an open relationship because I don't want my partner sleeping around. I have had people say right. that to me who are cheating on their partners. Where I've said to them, well, clearly you don't want to be in an, a, a monogamous relationship. You cheat all the time. Why not an open relationship? And they've looked me in the eye and said, well, I don't, want to, I don't want my partner fucking around on me the way I'm fucking around on them. And you need to really have pointed, risk-it-all conversations with your girlfriend where you, where you hammer away at this stuff to figure out where she actually is and what she actually wants. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm in complete agreement with, with all of this. One of the things that she said to me is that she doesn't want me, she doesn't want to exact her, my frustrations on this person by blocking him and unfriending him, which I feel like is not, I feel like that's bullshit because like, you don't know if somebody is following you and you don't know if you're blocked unless you are actively like, does that require a conversation? Like, Hey man, I'm going to block you because I can't like, that I gotta make. This oh my right. god, that requires a conversation that any sentient being would completely grok. I think as the kids stop saying the minute they heard me say it, I'm blocking you because it makes my boyfriend uncomfortable that we're still in contact because I cheated on him with you. So you're blocked. And so if, do you, so and he, is it? Am I out of line to ask for a for like for her to just do that? Like or no, that, no, you are not he, out of line okay. to ask for her to do that. That is completely that that's not irrational or arbitrary. That's understandable. It's not crazy for her to say, I am going to have a conversation with him about that. Yeah, she can have a conversation with him. She can say, look, my listen, ex-boyfriend, I ran into you. We fucked. My current boyfriend doesn't want us to be in touch anymore. So I need to unfollow you, unfriend you, and block you. And you know, yeah. maybe in five or ten years when I'm happily married and we have a couple of kids and everybody's secure, maybe then we can like be friends again. But probably not. Like – yeah, we shat the bed together and that's it. It's over and we'll run into each other on the street every once in a while because it's New York fucking city. But so as not to lose the boyfriend I have now that I don't want to lose, you got to go. You got to be off yeah. my social media. And you know what? Social media didn't exist 10 years ago or 15 years ago or whatever. The I know. And so they would have been able to be in touch like this anyway. Anybody can be in touch anytime. It's like is it one of those, I mean, not to get too not to analyze this too much, but it's, it's all, it's a very much trust. Right. This triggers me. And what social media does is constant touch. 
You're always in touch. You're yeah. always present in each other's lives, in each other's minds, in each other's imaginations. And you need him cut out of her life, cut out of her mind, cut out of her imagination, so he doesn't loom so large in yours. And if he continues to loom large in yours, it's going to be the end of your relationship. And if that's okay with her, look, if this guy continues to be such a presence in our lives, our relationship is going to end. It's going to collapse. Yeah. And if that's okay with her, if she would rather risk the collapse of your relationship than block this asshole on Instagram, you have your answer. Right. Yeah. Good luck. Thank you, Dan. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with author Nathaniel Frank. Frank is, in addition to being an author, historian, commentator, LGBTQ strategist, frequent contributor to the New York Times and other publications, also the director of Columbia Law School's absolutely invaluable What We Know Project, a research initiative that collects scholarship on LGBTQ issues. Somehow, while doing all of that, he found the time to write a new book, Awakening, How Gays and Lesbians Brought Marriage Equality to America, the first full-scale history of the marriage equality movement in the United States. Hey, Nathaniel, I've been a reader of yours and an admirer for a long, long time. Thank you for coming on the show. Likewise. I'm really glad to be with you. Uh, so I say I've been a reader for a very long time, and I have to admit right here at the top, and I'm embarrassed to admit, I haven't yet read the book. Uh, pardon me for that. I'll try to do that. Books take a long time. Yeah, book, <laughs> books are take a long time in this day and age to read, so I forgive you. But for someone like me who followed the marriage equality movement and wrote a lot about marriage equality, uh, what am I going to find in your book that's going to surprise me when I sit down to read it? Well, for starters, the fact is that people used to talk about you know a gay agenda, and I think some people still have this mythology in their mind that the gay agenda was forwarded by a unified front of, of powerful gays from their gleaming offices in Washington and Fire Island. And the fact is that marriage equality was an instance of great division within the LGBT community for years. And um, this may not surprise you or everyone who reads or listens to you, but I think some of the stories will surprise even those who have followed along for a good bit. There were ideological reasons that people opposed marriage. There were strategic reasons that people opposed marriage. And I get into great detail on all of that. Mm-hmm. I think another part of it is just how long people have been arguing about, debating, and discussing marriage within the community. There's a sense for those who may have tuned in to the issue in the late 90s or the early 2000s that this happened so quickly. And in many cases, it did happen quickly. But the fact is, and my book shows this, people have been discussing um, marriage equality since the 1950s and 1960s. Mm -hmm. It wasn't broad and popular, but that's when the pioneers who began putting this on the map started their work. And so I like to take the long view and show how long, in some senses, social change like this can actually take. So, you know, you talk to some particularly younger queers who try to frame marriage equality as this betrayal of the gay liberation movement that a bunch of rich white gay men decided one day that they would order the big gay orgs to jump on this issue, marriage equality, because they wanted to throw big fancy parties in big hotels. Yeah. But have weddings, you know, have the cake, have the, have the flowers, have the champagne. And that is just absolutely not how it played out. That is not what went down. Right. It's not. I mean, what's really important to understand in this issue and several, many other social change issues is how, Ideas like this that are once unfathomable to so many people often get put on the map by outsiders, not just outsiders to American culture, but outsiders to the movement um, itself. Uh, So it it wasn't, as you're saying, it wasn't the case that the powerful organizations or even powerful constituents within the LGBT movement started this issue. It was first talked about in this tiny little gay magazine called One. Mm -hmm. It was put on the cover 
largely as a farce. Um, they called it homophile marriage, and they had questions about what, would this be stuffy and hidebound, because that's what a lot of people thought about marriage. And it didn't necessarily go very far. There was a little marriage boom in the 1970s, inspired by the energy of Stonewall Uprising of 1969, and also inspired by the Black Civil Rights Movement, who had won a Supreme Court case banning interracial marriage bans in 1967. Mm -hmm. And so there was activity in the 1970s, but then it was sort of what I call uh, accidental activists, just gay and lesbian people who were going about their business and started to recognize that they deserved the exact same rights as everyone else. And so there's a lawsuit in Hawaii in 1991, Nina Bear and Janora Dancil were among the plaintiffs. And this was a lawsuit that was um, opposed by most of the major LGBT groups at the time. And wasn't, it, wait, wait, these outsiders wait, wasn't, it a, wasn't it opposed by all of the major LGBT groups at the time? They, uh, as I was. understand that it story, was. they couldn't get a lawyer from a national organization to represent them. They had to go with a local lawyer who wasn't part of the LGBT movement because contrary to, you know, the grousing after this victory, uh, it wasn't that the LGBT movement prioritized this over all else. This is something the movement deprioritized over all else. Right. That's right. The only reason I say most, I mean, you're absolutely correct. There were, um, you know, it's a decentralized movement. So there were people within some of the organizations and there were chapters within some of the organizations. Dan Foley, the straight lawyer who ultimately took on this case in the 1990s, had worked with the local ACLU chapter, ACLU Mm -hmm had developed an LGBT rights project in 1986. And then, of course, Evan Wolfson, who became sort of the godfather of the marriage equality movement, had worked at Lambda, and he supported the case, but Lambda, the organization, wouldn't let him take it until there was this surprise victory at the Hawaii Supreme Court, a sort of preliminary victory in 1993. And at that point, for the, for the continuation, the appeal, and so forth, Lambda allowed Evan to, uh, to be co-counsel. So, you know, there, there were... There was support in that regard, but you're right. The, the, the fact is that all of the major organizations said no, and that was for a mix of, of ideological reasons, that, that people did not see marriage as important, that they thought it was oppressive and bourgeois and sort of at odds with the liberation ideals of the early gay rights movement, mm-hmm. and strategic reasons. There were yeah, if we get married, then we can't suck time. as many cocks as we would like to otherwise, because marriage and cocksucking don't go together. That, well, that's the idea. I mean, as you and others have said, you can actually do quite a lot within marriage. Um, you can, you know, re- reform it and recreate it the, the way you want. And well, that, that's what, that, that was something I always constantly argued during the marriage equality movement because people, you know, I was a big supporter from very early on from the outset, really. And people were always really shocked that somebody who was such, so, such a sexual sort of, uh, I guess, sex radical was also for marriage because marriage was where theoretically sex went to die. Uh, but marriage is whatever the two people in it say that it is. That's where that's what really tripped up anti-marriage equality uh, lawyers and activists and organizations when you got to court, because it wasn't that we wanted to redefine marriage. It was that straight people had redefined marriage to an extent that you could no longer make a rational, logical argument, not based on the Bible, to exclude same-sex couples from the institution as straight people defined it and practiced it. Because it went well, from yeah. being an inherently sexist, uh, gendered institution to the legal union of two equal individuals uh, who, have compl- who had autonomy in that to, to create it for themselves. And there's nothing about marriage as straight people do it that we couldn't also do. Well, right. So that's exactly right. That part of the reason that marriage became a priority and that we ultimately won is because marriage was changing, you know, no thanks to gay people, thank you very much, for years, 
do to straight people. I mean, partly, partly in, in the ways that they were undermining the ideals and commitments that they had claimed that they were going to pursue by not taking those vows seriously, and partly because of um, aspects of the women's rights movement and black civil rights movement who were saying that marriage shouldn't be about gender and race uh, hierarchy. It should be about what people want it to be. It should be about the choice to commit to someone and uh, and to express that publicly. I, you know, I take slight issue with the idea that marriage can be whatever people want to say it is. I have mm-hmm. a slightly more traditional view about the importance of marriage as a kind of collective idea that requires some parameters. It can't literally be, and maybe I'm just being too much of a literalist, whatever people want it to be. Because that, And strategically, of course, that was a little bit dangerous. If you want to say a man can marry his sheep, <laughs> uh, which some people did say, and were worried with the slippery slope no, argument. No, no. Well, what next? Well, what I mean that, when you know, I say that, then that's not really a marriage, and that shouldn't be allowed. What right? I mean when but, I say marriage is whatever the two people say that it is is the the big I think three or four things that we heard when we demanded the right to marry that supposedly defined marriage were optional for straight people. When same-sex couples wanted to get married, marriage is about religion, marriage is about children, marriage is about monogamy, whereas straight people can be married without being religious, they can be married and not have children, and they can be married and not being monogamous. That these things that were suddenly, you know, for us, definitional, like you disqualified from being married because less likely to be monogamous, you can't make a baby, and the Bible says, those things didn't prevent straight people who were atheists, uh, committed to remaining childless and in open marriages or open relationships from marrying. So why should they disqualify right. and, us? And, and one of the great things about the marriage equality debate is that it forced a reckoning and a greater thought by straight people about what marriage is and should be, about what its purpose is. So there's a, you know, as a historian, I look at this in terms of there's a historical lag between the way people actually live and the way people think they live or the mm. way people's imaginations and visions about um, their institutions, their culture, and their identities uh, remain because they don't necessarily wake up every morning and sit around thinking about all the things you just said um, and, and about how their institutions have changed or ought to change. But we as outsiders had to explain what marriage really is these days and to remind people, oh, contraception is now guaranteed as a right, so marriage isn't all and exclusively about procreation. You know, it, it, and, and gender equality is now increasingly a norm, and so it's not about gender hierarchy, and it's not about consolidating racial and, and property uh, power. It's about all kinds of other things, and our debate forced straight people to recognize that and to understand what marriage was, and in many cases, toward the end of this battle in the 2010s, we saw straight people who were quoting these, the soaring language of judges, often Republican-appointed judges, on the constitutional fundamental freedom of the right to marry, because it was straight people who had been reminded of and asked to think about, what is marriage actually for? When I first talked about this with my straight brothers who just got married, and I said, why, why did you get married? They had never thought about it. They did it anyway. They mm. said, well, it was the next thing to do. I wanted to have babies. I loved my, my wife. But they didn't really think about what marriage was for. We helped them to think about what it was for and to recognize that, as you say, it had been changing for a long time and it had a new set of parameters. One of the, I think, unrecognized drivers of the marriage equality movement is the HIV-AIDS epidemic and the impact that had on the, the, the gay community and a lot of gay men. You talk about that in the book. Absolutely. The AIDS epidemic was one of the most important uh, impetuses behind what became the marriage equality movement, although I would hasten to add that it it wasn't a direct impact in that a lot of the people who started to fight for what became marriage equality uh, as a response to the 
AIDS crisis, we're, we're still fighting for some sort of broader aspect of, you know, let's broaden what families mean so that we can include same-sex relationships. But it's not necessarily that we want marriage itself. We want relationship recognition. We want recognition of what they call de facto parenting or de facto relationships. If you had operated that way in reality, then the judges should, un- should uh, accept as a legality that your relationships were so. And it was kind of the the unintended consequences of both the AIDS epidemic and the response to it that made marriage equality a priority. Mm. But absolutely, mm. in, in, d- during the AIDS crisis, the, there, were, there was a, a, a speedy new recognition of how important it was for the government to recognize people's relationships. And how vulnerable um, we were in the absence of that and, recognition. Exactly. And how, vulner- and how vulnerable we were without having both government recognition and employer recognition of our relationships and also government attention in general. So it used to be in the era of gay liberation that a lot of what gay people wanted was simply privacy. They wanted to be left alone and they were developing their own communities and their own institutions and their own culture in some ways. I'm talking about the sort of gay and lesbian enclaves of big cities and college towns. This wasn't the case everywhere. And there was a real sort of privacy. Don't tread on me. We want to get rid of the, the anti-sodomy laws. Um, but that's that. That was sort of one of the main things we want to get rid of, you know, homophobia and and violence and intimidation. But people weren't yet looking towards the government involvement in their lives. It's when the AIDS crisis hit, that suddenly became more important. And on the tails of that, government recognition not just of the general needs of gay people, but of their relationships and of the dignity of their love also became important. And let's translate what that what we talk about when we talk about how vulnerable gay couples were. Men who had lived together for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, one got sick, the other wasn't allowed to enter his hospital room, dragged out of the hospital room by homophobic family members who hadn't spoken to either men for decades. People had their apartments taken from them. People, real emotional uh, violence was done to people as their partners or they themselves lay dying. That's what vulnerable meant in those moments. Yes, real emotional violence and and real financial violence in that – People were also, you know, they were losing their jobs because of their illness or because of discrimination. They were losing health care if they had it related to their jobs. They never had health care coverage in the first place if it was uh, through their partner because their partner's relationships weren't recognized. And it suddenly became absolutely critical to have the government and the world recognize that these were people who were committed to each other. You know, when you're in a relationship, married or not, if you're in a long-term relationship, you often play caretaker, housekeeper, cook, errand runner, therapist, all of these roles to people. And what people began asking for was for the government and the world and the families to recognize those debts that people had incurred to one another. It Mm. wasn't, you know, this ideological idea, this is not how marriage equality got on the map. It wasn't all about ideology. It was about the pragmatics of this is the way we're now living and the government has to recognize it just as they recognize that for straight people. And I think that's an important part to remember. It was the pragmatics on the ground that ultimately drove marriage equality as a priority of the movement. One last thing I want to throw out there based on uh, one of your comments about people just wanted to be left alone. I remember when Terry and I uh, were adopting, this is 20 years ago, and uh, you know I was writing a lot about marriage equality and pushing for it uh, here in Washington State. And I was talking to an older gay friend who looked at me you know, when he heard that Terry and I were adopting and just said, all we wanted was to not get arrested. And he thought what we were doing was crazy and was going to create a backlash. 
has the marriage equality movement created a backlash here in the United States? There is always a backlash when you try to push forward with social change. And there's a great deal of backlash that's part of the story, and it's throughout my book, starting in Hawaii. I mean, starting earlier, but with the Hawaii lawsuit, what the voters of Hawaii ended up doing after the court granted victories was writing discrimination into the state constitution and reversing those victories. The same thing happened in Alaska. And then the same thing happened in dozens of states with largely Republicans writing constitutional amendments into their state laws, um, in some cases before marriage was ever likely, or, or in fact a law, marriage equality, in those states. And at the same time, between the launch of the earnest marriage equality movement in the early 90s and the Supreme Court decision guaranteeing it in 50 states in 2015 really was a very short period. It was a blink of an eye uh, within the larger history. And so I say that because, yes, there's backlash. You have to expect backlash, but you can't get anywhere if you don't push forward. So you want to be strategic about that. You want to do the groundwork uh, for changes that you're pushing to help ensure that you don't have catastrophic reversals. And the LGBT movement had learned its lessons around a number of examples uh, of those kinds of reversals. Um, the Bowers v. Hardwick decision in 1986 at the Supreme Court, which upheld sodomy laws, made it much harder to make advances mm -hmm. because judges kept citing that Supreme Court precedent and not, you know, for sodomy laws, for the military, even for marriage. And so that's why people were cautious. But you have to push forward in order to make any progress. You just have to prepare for the backlashes. And the more you can get buy-in across the land for the ideas that you're pushing, the firmer, the firmer ground your changes will be on, the harder they will be to reverse. Awakening, How Gays and Lesbians Brought Marriage Equality to America. New book from Nathaniel Frank. Thank you so much, Nathaniel, for jumping on the phone today. I appreciate it. It was great to be here, Dan. Hi, Dan. This is a question about masturbation. I'm a 33-year-old woman, and I just learned something about my 32-year-old boyfriend. We've been together for about nine months, and we're planning on moving in together soon. He just confided in me that he masturbates every day and sometimes up to four times a day. I'm not jealous, and our sex life is great, but I'm just wondering what might be the implications of being and living with someone who who masturbates this much and how typical is this? The chief implication is you're not going to want to grab a random hand towel from off the floor and wipe your face with it just in case, because he's probably using it as a cum rag. I could look up some stats really quickly on the frequency of masturbation. Your boyfriend's masturbatory routine once a day, sometimes up to four times a day does sometimes mean six times a week up to four times a day? Or does it mean once every couple of weeks he has a masturbate-a-thon kind of day and rubs four out in a frenzy? If it's the former, once a day and every once in a while he goes nuts, uh, and not the latter, I think he falls well within the sort of high-end range of normal masturbatory routines, particularly for a man his age. The implications for you, you're going to go through a lot of Kleenex potentially. You're going to go through a lot of paper towels. If he's a paper towel guy, you're going to find a lot of stiff and crusty socks on the floor. If he's the tube sock type, logistically, I don't think there are really any implications here you need to worry about so long as he is the considerate frequent masturbator who cleans up after himself and flushes away 
destroys or tosses the evidence into a laundry hamper or better yet into the washing machine on his own and unprompted. If you're worried about being neglected in favor of his right hand, you might want to bring that up with him. Doesn't sound like you've been neglected, but you haven't been living together yet. Some people get something out of masturbation they don't get out of partnered sex and they want to make time for both. So hopefully you guys are on the same page around frequency that your libidos roughly match, that you are sexually compatible. If you're having sex once a week, but you'd rather have sex three or four times a week, and you know he's masturbating every day, up to four times a day, that's going to create a lot of conflict in your relationship. But if you're satisfied with once or twice or three times a week, and you're getting it that often, and you know he's masturbating also every day, and that doesn't feel like sex you're being cheated out of, don't make it a problem. It shouldn't have to be a problem. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the woman in episode 551 with the ex-boyfriend who had become her friend with benefits and the friends who didn't get it. When I was in my mid-20s, I dated an older man. When we broke up, we then entered an almost two-year-long fuck-buddy relationship, friend with benefits relationship, and it was the best thing to ever happen to me. After we split, he became the best boyfriend I've ever almost ever had when he was no longer my boyfriend. Something about that label made us fight and quibble about where we were going and taking the label away from it made it so much more fun. It taught me a ton about what being in a relationship meant. It taught me about maturity. It taught me about working out my differences and using out my words. In short, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me and it made me more ready to meet the amazing guy that I'm with now. Um, So tell our friends to screw it. Just keep doing what you're doing. Sounds awesome. Have a great time. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the guy who called because his grandmother was getting a lot of right-wing propaganda and giving her money to Trumpy organizations. But um, I just want to call because I had some good ideas. I thought he should subscribe his grandmother to a couple nice print magazines that are kind of more left-leaning, but generally, like... Um, easy to consume for someone that's, you know, middle of the road or even Republican. But anyways, um, he should subscribe his grandmother to the print issues of Mother Jones magazine and also Utney Readers. Great. Anyways, good luck, Grandma. Hi, I'm calling about the guy at at the end of episode 551 who wants to frighten his grandmother. He kept asking if he was an asshole. I think he is. She's already being frightened by the right wing. She's almost certainly terrified by the process of losing her memory. What she needs from her grandchild is love, tenderness, a willingness to spend time with her without trying to persuade her to agree with his views. Maybe he can introduce her to his diverse group of friends. Just be nice to her. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Be sure to check out Blabbermouth, the stranger's weekly political podcast, where I sit in every week or as often as I can. Just look for Blabbermouth from the stranger on whatever podcast platforms you're using. And Hump, my porn film festival, is coming at you or coming to you or coming on you. Just go to humpfilmfest.com to check out locations and upcoming tour dates. And you can also go to humpfilmfest.com and click on submit to find out how you can make a film for Hump. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow our guest this week, Nathaniel Frank, on Twitter at NFrankResearch. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. 
Kita sudah menunggu.